Good morning. It's great to uh, be here with you guys um, and, uh, and just uh, enjoy this morning together. Uh, I brought my wife along with me uh, because, well, I'm scared to be in front of you alone. And so what does a good man do? They bring their wife with them whenever they're scared. Um, but so real quick, we were in this, we're in this John series and we're in chapter five and Greg started this little passage last week where, where these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders are coming to Jesus, trying to kill him. And, and Jesus sort of gives this response to them, trying to kill him for what he's saying. And last week was the first half of that response. This week will be in the second half. And last week was about how Jesus is saying he should be honored because he is the son of the father and that he should be honored as the father, that he um, is God's son. And essentially equal with God, but that's great, but what if you don't believe that? What if, what if you don't, in their case, these Jewish leaders' case, what if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And that's because, well, first one, you know, belief is, simply put, accepting something as truth, but it's hard to believe. And even as believers, maybe you're, you're, you would call yourself a Christian or Christ follower, and you believe in who Jesus says he is, um, but still there's things in life or maybe even areas of our life that we don't fully trust God with. And it's really difficult. And my wife and I just went through a season where we had to completely trust God and weren't really sure if it was him or not. And so that's why I have her up here because it's not just my story to share. It's our story together. It's something that, that we have lived through together. And so she's super brave in being up here. And now I get to clean the toilets for like the rest of our lives and to make up for this moment. Uh, but um, so I, I just want to, I want us to share our story of God bringing us from Arizona to, to California real quick to lead into this, um, this morning's sermon. So Jill, describe for everyone the moment I, I looked at you and I said, I think God wants us to move to California. Um, Jared and I had been out in California to celebrate. Um, his sister had gotten engaged and we got to be a part of that. And my little sister was having her first baby. So um, whenever we come out to California, it seems like it's always a jam-packed weekend so we can have the most of it with our, the time that we get to spend with our families. And um, we had, uh, we were leaving Jared's parents' house and um, Jocelyn, she's our three and a half year old, um, was very, very upset that she was leaving Gigi and Mimi. And Gigi and Mimi are our moms. And she was crying and was hysterical. And I'm like trying to calm her down because I'm like, I don't want this to be in the next five and a half hours of our car drive. And Jared is like crying. And I'm like, what is going on here? Why are you crying? And um, yeah, he says allergies. <laughs> So um, in that moment, um, Jared had said, what do you think about moving back to California? And um, I got really taken back and kind of stunned at his comment because um, we had been away for about eight years and it's always had been something that I wanted to do because I missed our family and just um, missed California. But Jared didn't share that same missing like I did. I missed the family. I just didn't miss the state. He didn't miss the traffic. And um, so a part of my heart never allowed me to think, hey, what if we could do this? I was happy in Arizona and I thought that that's where we were going to be for a while out in the desert. And um, then for the next five and a half hours, Jared and I kind of started talking about this what if we moved to California conversation. So 
what made it, I mean, you kind of shared how I didn't like it, but other than that, like, what kind of made it hard to believe that this was God and not just me losing my mind? Um, because I think there had been so many times that there was a part of my heart that wanted it to be so true. And I, my prayer was is that God would make it so blatant and so in our face one day that Jared couldn't deny that God was bringing us back to California. And so was there a point or points where God, like where you knew, okay, this is God, my husband, yes, he's crazy, but not about this. Yeah, he's crazy. Um, so for us, um, our mentors, we kind of, you know, we didn't share this with our family. So talk about feeling like very alone and um, our family not knowing kind of what we had been going through over the last month and a half. And so a good friend of ours, Paul, had said, hey, you guys need to make a list. Like, make a list of things that God needs to do so you know it's not Jared's crazy mind and you know that this is truly God bringing you here. So we had a list of about 10 things and it was about um, um, selling our home, jobs for each other, being at a church that loved the arts, community, missional, um, a place for our girls, a safe community, a, a community for me as um, being a pastor's wife, and just kind of all these things. And they started happening really, really fast. Our household, like literally in five days, it was a cash buyer, like that doesn't happen, and just all these other things. But I still needed more because I was just like, oh, that's luck, you know, which it wasn't. But my mind it was. So we had a very good friend of ours in church one Sunday, Jared was speaking, and she looked at me in the middle of his service, and she was just like, you're moving to California, aren't you? And I like started crying. It was Mother's Day, and I hadn't been in church in a while due to work, and tears just started streaming down my face, and I was like, oh my gosh, she caught me. And um, she said, God had shared with me about six months ago that you guys were going to be moving. And I knew it was going to be California. And then we had another, our inner core at our church. When we told them, they weren't surprised. They were kind of like, yeah, we knew that. And so I think that God was like, here you go, Jillian, right here. I'm using my disciples to speak through you. This is what you're supposed to do. And I think he knew that I needed people to tell me and not just be situations that um, happened. So the last question and the more difficult question, we've been here for a couple months now, but almost three months. Uh, did you, or, or maybe even do you, um, have doubts or doubted that this is God or, or that he's, you know, the one that brought us here and has us here? Jared saved this question for last when he was telling me he was going to ask me these questions. So doubt for me has been really hard. Um, I uh, recently got a promotion right before I left for my dream job, and I was so excited, and um, I was really thriving at it, and I was just like ecstatic that I had finally gotten this job that literally from the time I was born I had grown up wanting to do. And so right now my current job is very challenging, and um, that's really hard for me because I know that we're supposed to be here, and I know that God made that really, really clear to me, but it's hard when you see your husband thriving, and sometimes you don't feel like that's kind of where you're at. So God is teaching me patience and humility, and uh, we've been really blessed with our family who's been like supporting me and keeping my personal cheerleaders. And um, so that's what's hard for me is just knowing that, okay, I got you here. You need to trust me. 
and it's going to be a bumpy road, but you're going to rock at it. So that's been hard. Thank you for sharing, especially being in the middle of the story still. Can we thank her for being up here? Let's pray real quick uh, before we just kind of continue. God, uh, just thank you um, for this morning and just uh, the opportunity just to come together and hopefully uh, uh, learn more about you and just know you on a deeper level, God, and uh, not just that, grow together as a community, as a family here um, uh, at Olive Branch. God, just, uh, just thank you for this time. Pray you be here uh, and speak through me in this message. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so belief, all right? Um, belief is... is a difficult thing. It's difficult to accept anything as truth, especially without a lot of proof. And even through, as you kind of saw in our story a little bit, and even still, it's still kind of hard to believe that, man, is this really God who brought us here and, and wants us here to do this? Even still, Jesus, he's trying to prove um, to these Jewish leaders that he is the son of God, that he's God's son, and that he's equal with God and should be honored. And so he talks about how he should be honored, which we talked about last week, and now he's about to give um, five testimonies or, or five proofs, essentially, to these Jewish leaders. Now, you have to remember, he's having this conversation, and because I'm about to read like the whole passage straight through so you can get the whole context together, and he's having this conversation with guys who are trying to kill him because of what he's saying. Most of the time, if someone was going to come to me and threaten my life, I'd like run or like try and like have peace and, you know, go get tacos on Taco Tuesday or something like that, but not sit there and tell them some really, really, really hard truth, right? So I'm going to read John 5. I'll start in verse 30. We'll go through uh, 47. And this is Jesus again responding. And he just got done talking about how he should be honored as the Father is honored. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is nothing who testify, there is, excuse me, there is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified about the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. But you've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I, I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father, your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so he gives in this, there's, there's five 
proofs or five testimonies that we're going to go over. But what I love is in, in the very beginning, before he goes into it, in verse 31, he says, if I testify, testify about myself, like that's not enough. Like my, my testimony is not true. Not, he's not saying, hey, what I'm about to say isn't true because, you know, he's Jesus. Everything he says is truth. But he understands that he's got these Jewish leaders. They're basically like Bible lawyers. And any good lawyer wants to hear some good testimonies and wants to hear some good proofs. And the reason why is because we as people lie. We live in a world where we lie to each other, even the ones we love the most and would promise that we would never lie to. Like, we still lie to them. We can't, we can't help it. My family's here. I'm sure they could tell you all kinds of stories about when I lied growing up, but I'm going to share one uh, from high school. Uh, between, since I'm a youth pastor, I like to go back to the high school years for, for memories and stories. But between my sophomore and junior year of high school is when this story takes place. So all of sophomore year, I had this crush on this girl. All right, and, and I had hoped to get her attention so that we could become a thing. Well, she, she didn't want to be a thing with me. That's okay. That's how crushes work, right? They crush you. And so, and so this other girl, though, right at the end of the year, started to show, show some interest in me, and that for me was enough to show interest back. And so me and this other girl, not my crush, uh, started talking, exchanged numbers over summer. She actually came out, hung out with my family on 4th of July, and they thought she was weird because she wore jeans in the ocean, which should have been a red flag. But it's like, but she likes me, and that's all I need right now. It's just a little confidence boost. And, uh, and so shortly after that, though, I got invited to my crush's birthday party. And, and her and I hit it off there. And we started to become a thing, and I started lying to this other girl by not telling her about it and saying that I was still into her because what if this, my crush, you know, what if that didn't work out? I needed a backup plan. I know, awful. It's not good. Don't do this, all right? Uh, again, this is a, an example of what not to do. And so I lied and stuff. So it's first day of school, uh, uh, junior year, and we're all in like the quad and the atrium. I went to Canyon High School in Anna Mills, and, and there's like this huge outdoor area where everybody like convenes before class starts. And I'm sitting there and I just hear, like real loud. I'm like, what is my mom doing at school? Because it was a female voice that was the, like making the noise and sound of my name in the like, you're about to die for what you just did tone. And not that my mom ever did that. That's not true. She did a lot. And uh, I, was, I was a struggle. For, I was a character building person for her. I built her character by testing her patience a lot. And so anyways, I'm like, what is that? I feel someone like take my arm and grab it, pull me in literally like to the middle of everybody. Like and I'm, she just starts going off on me, yelling like crazy. I'm looking around. The place is quiet, like pin drop quiet, which is a huge deal for teenagers because they're never quiet. And, and so I'm standing there amongst all my peers, everybody. She's going off on me. Everybody's quiet staring. And then she, at the very end, she like loads up. She saves some of the harshest words that I can't say here until uh, the very end, raises her hand back and just, but like with like the Serena Williams, like backhand for extra strength, like, ah, like strength into it. Slapped me across the face. I mean, and it just like echoed like through the quad. And I'm like, oh my gosh. She takes off and I'm like looking around. Everybody's staring at me. I walk to my friends. I'm like, whoa, did you guys see that? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, that was like a movie. That was awesome. <laughs> did not learn my lesson, right? <laughs> Lying was a struggle for me growing up. And it's really, it's a struggle for all of us. Some more than others. But we lie about everything, which is why 
just our testimony isn't enough, and it's not even enough for Jesus. His own words aren't enough. He says, listen, I can say who I am, but I understand that that is not enough. And so he gives these five proofs. In verse, uh, where are we at here? All right, in verse uh, uh, 33 through 35, he says John the Baptist. He talks about John the Baptist who came before him and, and, and laid the foundation and laid the path for Jesus to come. And they actually liked him. They liked what he had to say. They were stoked. Oh, the Messiah is coming. Great. But then it didn't turn out to be what they thought. And so they didn't like him anymore. Well, the next testimony Jesus gives, he says, is even better because it's not a human testimony. He says, look at what I do. Look at the works I'm doing, the works of the Father that I am doing. I am only able to do all these miracles and all the stuff I'm doing because I'm from him, because I'm his son. Like that, that is proof enough. But they still didn't believe. In verse 37 and 38, he says, the Father testifies about me. At Jesus' baptism, the Father's voice came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus says, because you didn't believe, you didn't hear. You can't hear him because you don't believe. And then in verse 39, he says, look at the scriptures. The scriptures that you know, that you study backwards and forwards, talk about me. Not just about who I am and my character, but specifically where I would be born, how I would be born, and everything that I'm going to do. They talk about me, and yet you still don't believe. And he goes on to say, you know, and it's not even me who's accusing you, it's Moses. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me, because Moses is the one who wrote this law and this Bible that they're obsessed with in the Old Testament everything that they're obsessed with and that they know backwards and forward, he's the one who wrote it. And so the problem wasn't that they knew it because knowing isn't believing. To know something doesn't mean you believe it. You see, you could, which literally they could, write the Bible from memory, like at that time was the Old Testament, right? Because all of this back half of the Bible was happening at the time of this passage, right? But they literally could write backwards, forwards, the whole New Testament, or excuse me, Old Testament, their Bible from memory verbatim. They knew the whole thing. They knew it like the back of their hand, and yet they still didn't believe, and that's because knowing isn't believing. So, so why, why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Why didn't they believe that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he is the Son of God? Well, in verse 41 through 44, he like cuts and like, again, I remind you, they want to kill him right now and he's saying stuff like this to him. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. That's key right there. See, he knows them. The five testimonies, the five proofs he just gave are significant. If they could have come up with their own list before Jesus gave them any testimonies or proof at all. If they could have come up with their own list, it would have been those five things. They're the perfect witnesses, the perfect testimonies that they needed before they even said it. Jesus said, here's what you need to know to believe, but they still didn't believe. He says, I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, the problem was 
their religion was, was about looking good. Their religion was about not honoring God, but honoring themselves and getting honor for themselves. And it's because it's not about the why, it's about the what. And what I mean is, is it's not about what you look like or what you live like, but why you're living that way. And, and they did, essentially, they're doing all the right stuff because they know it, but they're doing it for the wrong reason. And that's what God cares about most. We are, honestly, we're not that different. Unbelievers, Christ followers, or, or, or everybody in between, right? As non-believers, before you give your life to Christ, which for me wasn't until late in high school, um, we, we like to think of the good stuff in our life can make up for the bad stuff. But the problem is, is in that, we, we define what's good. For me, my good stuff was I'm always gonna I'm always gonna treat women with respect and 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 I'm gonna never fight and I'm gonna be a peacemaker and try to keep people from fighting and that'll make up for all the all the sin and all the wrongness in my life. We like to think that the good that we do can justify all the wrong in our life. And even still as believers, as Christ followers, we do the same thing. We like to think that, you know what, I go to church like most of the time if not all the time. Sometimes I even show up on accident because I'm lost, you know, right? Or I pray as often as possible and I pray with my family or I pray before meals and you know what, I've, I've got decent manners and I'm, I'm kind of a decent person or whatever or I tithe and, and we think that we can justify the areas that we exclude God in our life by just the few areas we allow him to be a part of. And I think part of it is because of our culture. Um, we, we like to think we're good and we don't like to tell each other that we're not good. It's a difficult thing to tell somebody, hey, you suck. I mean, it's not fun. It's not a fun conversation to have, especially if it's about something you, someone you care about, right? But here's the thing. It starts young. As, as kids, our parents, our family are always talking about how good we are. And they're always bragging to other parents and other families about how good we are. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to, to encourage people or, or to encourage or, or lift people up, but it's wrong when we take that, those good words about us or, or um, compliments or whatever, and like that's why we do what we do. Like I'm going to be a good person so that people look at me and think I'm good. To be honest with you, moment of vulnerability, standing here right now, being up here, like I have, I've had like anxiety for a long time. I actually was asked to preach like a month and a half ago before I even moved out here. And I said no, because I'm too scared. And, um, and part of it is not because I'm scared of like, I don't know, failing or whatever, but honestly, because I was scared of what you guys would think because I was scared of looking bad in front of you. So even being up here for me, it's, it's tempting. Just, you know what? I just want to make sure that you guys are all happy and then I'm good. But each time I get in these moments where I start to think that way, I just kind of step back. I'm like, you know what, God, this is, it's not about me. It's about you. I don't care if I fall backwards and knock stuff over, which could very well happen as close as these chairs are behind me. Um, but it's not about me. It's about you. Even this past week, my, my, uh, my grandma, she went into the hospital and um, she basically, she'd gotten sick. She'd gotten the flu and she's like 90 years old and, um, no one heard from her after about a week or so. And so some people went over there and they had to break open the window to get in and they found her on the floor, um, unable to reach anything or get anywhere. And there's vomit everywhere. Um, so they, they got her to the hospital and everybody thought it was over. Everybody thought this is it. This is going to take her 
she was ready to leave. She just kept saying, telling people how she just, she missed um, uh, her, her husband who has passed, my grandpa, and, uh, and that she was just ready to go. And I got to talk to her the next day when she started to come back around, but I still think she thought she was done because the conversation wasn't like a casual conversation you have someone. She was talking to me as though this might be the last conversation she ever has with me. And she kept telling me about how much she loves me and how proud of me she is and, and how good my life is and all the good I'm doing and, and how I'm such a blessing and all this stuff. And, you know, to be honest, it's, it's so tempting to just sit there and just go, yeah, I am good. My, my life is good. Thanks, Grandma. You know, especially when there's so many other people in this world um, that are struggling to figure out how to live this life. And you want to compare yourself to them and be like, I'm better than them. So I'm good. And then when you get those compliments, it, it kind of feeds that. Not that what she was saying was wrong. It wasn't wrong for her to tell me she's proud of me. That's right. It's a good thing to do. What was wrong was my heart in the moment. And I think often we can accept honor from people instead of honoring God. It's such a tempting thing to do. We become so caught up with, with looking good for people that we completely miss to just live for God and honor him, the definer and creator of good. Even in, uh, in sharing Christ, I think even sometimes when we share, just as Christians, right, when we share Christ with people, or if it's with your kids, I think sometimes we can focus too much on the what instead of the why, and we can focus too much on what people look like as opposed to why are they living that way. Like we just, we, we want them to believe and know Jesus so much because we know how amazing it is to give your life to him finally and, and trust him completely because of how he changes our life, but we just want them to look changed as opposed to actually love God. I mean, we want them to love God, but sometimes we can get a little caught up and distracted by what they look like, as opposed to why they're living the way they live. Uh, this past week, or a couple weeks or whatever, I took sort of a survey from some parents and students here at the church, and I, I basically, in that um, asked to, let me preface this with, this is not like a, like, con, like condemning, like judgment moment. All right. I promise. Um, and so anyways, I took, I took, um, a survey and they were supposed to rate for parents. How much do they want their kids to be involved in all these different areas in the church? One, I mean, I know it's important, but I don't really care if they ever do it. 10 being like, obviously it's as important as the thing I put a one for, but I'm going to really do all I can to make sure that they do this thing. And so on that list, there was a few things, but the two extremes were attending church Sunday mornings and going on mission trips. And so I did it for the parents and the students. I had the students rate for themselves, right? And so parents put, uh, gave a 9.2 for an average score out of 10 for attending church on Sundays. Students put 8.2 for attending church on Sundays. Now, slightly lower, but what's interesting was it's actually higher for junior high, but lower for high school. I don't know what that means but we can process that together. Um, mission trips, though, kind of opposite, something different. Mission trips, though, parents put a 4.7 for an average score. Students put an 8. And what I love about the student scores is, in general, they just kind of put higher numbers for everything in general. I mean, trust me, there was parents who put all 10s and all 1s, and students put all 1s and 10s and stuff. But Seeing them at eight, students kind of see, you know, these two are similar. Going to church, being in community, and living that out in the world and sharing that and taking it to far places, 
are equally important. But the flip side, as a parent, I get it. Like, man, I want to keep my kids safe. Like, that is sketchy, scary stuff. I mean, this world is, is insane. And anywhere outside of my arms is not safe. And so it's a scary thing to want to send your kids off somewhere. But I think as parents, and not just as parents, but even as people, um, just sharing the good news with other people, I think it would help if we focus less on giving God to people or our kids and giving our kids to God or giving people to God. We need to focus less on their image and more on their heart. I was talking with a parent this week and, and um, they're kind of doing something that my wife and I are going to do. And just, just an example for the parenting s- scheme and things. Uh, for when it comes to dating, it seems like a pretty good idea to put an age range on that. Like no dating until you're 13 or 16 or 58, whatever it is, right? <laughs> like until you need prunes regularly in your diet, you are not allowed to date. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, and right, but instead, what we're going to do, and what this parent talked about, is instead of just putting a number on it, because that's kind of a cultural thing, right? Our government, our culture has a lot of people, a lot of different people, and they can't know everybody on an individual basis really well, so they just kind of put general guidelines for things. Well, for my wife and I, we're going to define what dating is and marriage and what a relationship looks like, as opposed to just putting an age on it. Do I hope it's an older age? Sure, of course, because if it's 13, I, that they are able to define it and actually believe that and ready, like, that's going to be a little bit scary, and I'm going to be not so excited about that. I have some time, hopefully at least, you know, 20 years. She's three now, do the math. And, uh, but even if she gets it at 13, odds are she's going she's gonna to be in a mature enough point if she's even able to be by that point, to she's not going to find anybody worth dating. She's not going to find anybody that's on the same page as her. And it's, it's, getting, it's getting beyond the what does it look like. I want you to look old enough and opposed to just, I want you to be old enough, right? I want you to, to be mature. As opposed to, I don't want you just to look like a good religious person. I want you to love God. Thank you. Never gotten one of those before. That was fun. I'm going to remember this moment forever. <laughs> I don't know what that says about past preaching or if it's what, but anyways. <laughs> Maybe students just, I mainly speak in front of students. That's not their thing, I guess. No, but believing isn't easy. It's a difficult thing to, to just believe in Jesus and believe who he says he is, that he's the son and the savior and that he came to give our lives for us, that he defeated death and that he lives That's not an easy thing to believe, but not because there's not proof, not because there's not evidence. That's not why we don't believe. We don't believe because to believe that means we love him more and we want our lives to honor him and not ourselves. And that's a difficult thing to let go of is getting honor for ourselves and making our life about ourselves or living it the way we think it should be lived instead of God. And so that's why Jesus says, like, I, you know, even what I say is not enough. Look at John the Baptist. He told them, look at the works and miracles I'm doing. Look at my father. Look at scripture. Look at Moses. But even still, we have one more thing to look at, and that's the cross. You know, we, 
any decent scholar, whether they're a Christ, a Christian, or, or an atheist, acknowledges the fact that Jesus existed. His existence isn't something that, that's even debatable. We know he existed. We even have more proof that he existed, and scripture's more accurate than most of our history books that talk about our dead presidents in this country. And that's, that's the truth of it. That doesn't make our presidents less true, but what's significant is, but is what Jesus said true? That's the most important thing, because he's either, either what he said is true or he's a nut job. But I can look at the cross and know, and all the witnesses that he appeared to after he, death and now, after he died and rose from the dead and know that he lives, he is who he says he is, and he loves me, not because of what I do, but because I'm his, because he made us, because he says I'm worth dying for, because he wants me and he wants us to be made new. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt becomes unbelief without action, whereas doubt with action becomes wonder. You see, in faith, even after you give your life to Christ, you're still going to have doubts, but that doesn't mean you don't believe. It becomes unbelief when you just sit with your doubts and you do nothing about it and you just assume your doubts. But when you begin to live out your faith and live what scripture talks about and what Jesus talks about and what the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, when you begin to live that out, that doubt becomes, you know what, I wonder about God. When my wife and I had to move out here and God said, you need to move out, trust me, there were some doubts. We didn't want to move. I did not dress this nice for the interview because I was almost trying not to get the job here. Um, Not that this is nice and you're looking at me like, it's not even a suit, man, where's the tie? Remember, I'm a youth pastor, right? Um, (laughs) But it was difficult. And even still, there's struggles. It's hard for me to see my wife not be, not enjoy or thrive where she's at working. It's difficult. And it makes me question, God, what are you doing, man? Come on. But we're not sitting in it. She's not just quitting and walking away. We're trusting in faith and pushing through with action. And we're wondering about God. And whenever we wonder about God, he always leaves us in awe. Let me pray and then we'll worship. God, I would just, uh, just thank you for this time and this morning. God, I pray that you help us to help us to trust what you said. Help us to trust your son, God. I, I, I pray that you help us to trust you with not just our belief in who you said you were, but God, trust you with every area of our life. God, help us to find ourselves at the intersection where wonder, doubt, and action collide so that our faith may grow in you. God, we thank you for loving us no matter what. It's your name we pray. Amen.